Hi there, Duncan Green here with uh, the week's roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Already feels like 2023 is well advanced, although we've had, it's been quite quiet the last couple of weeks, but next week kicks off with term starting at LSE. All my activism students rock up and it all gets very busy, but uh, looking forward to it. Anyway, um, back to the blog. Started off with the links I liked. First one, rather sad. Um, Martin Revalian died just before Christmas. Uh, he was a, a superstar analyst of poverty and inequality at the World Bank and kind of set the framework for the way we talk about poverty in particular. Um, and uh, who, he's a great loss. Um, and another fascinating bit of uh, you know truthiness, stats crunching from the FT's John Byrne Murdoch, who's become a bit of a superstar uh, in the last couple of years through covid and other things he just tweets fantastic graphs if you're if you're on twitter do follow him um he tweeted something which showed um that millennials in the uk and the us are bucking a very very well established trend they don't get more right wing as they age in fact the opposite they get more more left wing so um if you're left wing that gives you hope if you're right wing that makes you worry um, but very interesting. I suspect house prices has a lot to do with it. But uh, anyway, very interesting piece of uh, number crunching from uh, John Byrne Murdoch. The next piece was a polemic. Uh, humanitarians must reject the Taliban's misogyny. Uh, Hugo Slim from the uh, Las Casas Institute for Social Justice at Blackfriars Hall, Oxford University, got in touch. And he wanted to vent. And he, the thing he wanted to vent about was the way hum some humanitarians have reacted to the Taliban's crackdown on the role of women uh, in society and in aid. Uh, I'll just read a, uh, some of it. Um, uh, here goes. Once again, humanitarians are bogged down in a moral predicament in Afghanistan. The extreme misogyny of Taliban policy is back and international humanitarian agencies should refuse to cooperate with it. The Taliban's initial tolerance of gender equality in 2021 proved very predictably to be just a ploy to trick Western aid agencies into staying and paying. It was about budget support and international recognition, not gender justice. The Taliban have now shown their true face in their countrywide persecution of women and girls who are banned from most areas of public life and education. On Christmas Eve, the Taliban banned women aid workers too and humanitarians are now wondering what to do. In a statement just after Christmas, the Interagency Standing Committee, the highest level humanitarian coordination forum, started lobbying for a humanitarian carve-out that would make an exception for aid agencies. Their statement spoke only of the instrumental value of women as humanitarian workers and said nothing about the absolute value of women as human beings. This is morally inadequate. It misses the point. Women are being persecuted as a group across Afghanistan. Humanitarians need to recognise this outright and stand against it, making clear that the Taliban's mistaken form of Islam amounts to the comprehensive persecution of 50% of the population. Nor is it morally sufficient, as some aid workers are privately arguing, that because Taliban, le Taliban leaders in about 25% of the country are turning a blind eye to edicts on women's education and work, hum humanitarians should keep engaging. This seems to accept that persecution of women in 75% of Afghanistan is tolerable. A blinkered humanitarian view of the persecution of women in Afghanistan today 
which focuses only on aid agency staffing, is rightly troubling the conscience of many humanitarians who see the problem as much bigger than its effect on their own operations. They are right to do so. The current IASC, the Standing Committee approach, follows a conventional strategy of neutral humanitarianism, which uses limited complicity to secure humanitarian gains by engaging with the Taliban. The complicity calculation is that biological life is paramount because it is sacred in itself, and if kept alive, a person may one day experience a better quality of life. For this reason, humanitarians have always worked closely with terrible regimes to prioritise the quantity of life, regardless of limits on the quality of that life. Humanitarians could continue their limited complicity with the Taliban, perhaps justifying it by saying, there are Taliban moderates we can work with, despite the hardliners. In such limited complicity, they do not share the Taliban's inhumane policy for women, but they do still recognise the Taliban, show them respect, and compromise with them on a daily basis in ways which inevitably bend humanitarian programming towards Taliban policy. I sympathise with these arguments and have used them many times myself. I'm sure such compromise will always remain persuasive to many humanitarians if the ban on women aid workers is not reversed. But surely, they will say, even with only male staff we can save and improve lives, so we must go on. I expect UN agencies and the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, may follow this line, but they would be wrong to do so in this case. So what should international humanitarians do in the face of such a comprehensive political crime? If international humanitarians compromise, compromise with such extreme misogyny and its comprehensive persecution of women and girls in Afghanistan, then they weaken the universal moral standing of gender equality and the principle of humanity on which it is based. So Hugo, Hugo's argument is refusal, non-cooperation and exit. Some international non-governmental organisations, NGOs, are refusing to cooperate with Taliban policy and are suspending their operations. For them, working with an Islamist dictatorship that persecutes all women and girls is a step too far down the slippery slope of complicity. I agree with them for two reasons. First, the universal significance of gender equality and human rights, and uh, women's rights. Women's rights are a profound part of justice across the world today, and an essential element of the principle of humanity. It is something to stand up for. Taliban policy is not some deeply popular manifestation of culture and cost custom. It is a catastrophic restriction of the humanity of women and girls and their creative influence in wider society. Second is political realism. Liberal values are losing in, Afghan in Afghanistan for now, and Western-sponsored humanitarian agencies are the least likely of all political powers to influence the Taliban on its core policies. The Taliban dis detest the West. Politically, it is now the turn of Afghan men and women and the Asian powers around them to influence the Taliban and set up systems of humanitarian aid. China, Pakistan, Qatar, Iran, India and Central Asian powers have greater responsibility than Western leverage and power in Afghanistan today. Western humanitarians and diplomats who keep insisting on Western responsibility and agency are asking Afghans to live in false hope because the West cannot deliver change. Centering Western responsibility also allows neighbouring states to pretend moral immunity from this disaster for women's humanity. 
Many might disagree with this last point and argue that NATO's war in Afghanistan gives the West a particular responsibility for humanitarian repair in Afghanistan today. But this responsibility does not hold if the West is an unacceptable power or if the process of repair requires international agencies to inflict moral damage on themselves by violating one of their deepest values, gender justice. The last two centuries of Western interference in Afghanistan have proved that it is only really Afghans who change Afghanistan and only they who can find an appropriate form of gender justice in Afghan society. In the meantime, many international agencies may find their aid agencies more welcome and effective in East Africa. So a really powerful piece from Hugo. Uh, caused quite a stir, got a lot of reads. Um, I had to put a big disclaimer on it saying this is not representing the views of Oxfam because this is very much a live debate within Oxfam as well. Um, but uh, I put it out there um, on my own responsibility because I think it was an important contribution. If you want to agree or disagree, do come on the blog. The comment section is really doing great at the moment. Do come on and, and express your opinion. Next post of the week, uh, how well does the IMF engage with civil society? So this is based on a new Oxfam paper that came out this week um, on this very question. They don't normally float my boats, you know, these questions about process and civil society, arguing for more involvement of civil society, all sounds both a bit self-serving and a bit dull, but this paper's different. I thought it was really well researched, good case studies, and a few surprises. Um, so uh, I uh, blogged a summary of the summary. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has far-reaching impacts at global as well as national level. When countries are under financial distress and turn to the IMF, its financial support and even more so the numerous macroeconomic reforms that the fund requires in return for such financing, known as conditionality, have significant effects on the future of those countries and their people. Too often, IMF loan programmes come with austerity-packed conditionality that seeks to rebalance the government's books at the expense of exacerbating inequalities. The final sign-off on loan programmes rests with the IMF Executive Board. But before those decisions are made, IMF staff spend months and sometimes years on missions to firm up loan packages and, most importantly, their conditions with the borrower governments. In recent decades, these missions have begun to reach out to civil society organisations, CSOs, who represent interests distinct from those of governments and the private sector. However, Despite the importance of engaging civil society for the sake of enhanced accountability and designing more transparent, better informed and less risky loan programmes, the extent, meaningfulness and impact of, these, of this engagement have remained questionable. This paper represents case study research from Argentina, Ecuador, Tunisia, Zambia, Pakistan, Egypt and Ghana. So a pretty good spread of countries. Key findings. One, IMF CSO engagement is characterised by an imbalance of power. The biggest overall finding is that the IMF's engagement with CSOs is marred, marred by an imbalance of power skewed towards the fund. This is enabled mainly by the mechanisms of engagement, the lack of a mandated requirement for civil society engagement, the selection of who is included or excluded in engagement, and as well as the perceived or real differences in technical economic capacity between the IMF and national CSOs. The setting in which national level engagement typically takes place 
is characterized by informality and confidentiality. These off-the-record interactions obscure who the IMF has or hasn't spoken to and mean that CSOs have a difficult time holding the IMF accountable to any commitment it might make, including if and how it takes CSO feedback into account. As most engagement is unstructured and conducted at the will of individual IMF, IMF staff, there can be large differences in the nature of engagement within and across countries. While it remains unknown exactly which CSOs the IMF speaks to in any given country, including the case study countries, only three countries had confirmed incidences of trade unions being engaged either directly or indirectly. In these engagements, IMF staff approach meetings from extremely technical aspects of the economic policies under consideration and not adapted to civil society as a target group to enable their participation. Given the IMF's vantage point, they inevitably have more terminology, more technical might and more information than their CSO counterparts. Similarly, CSOs are often engaging with the IMF on issue areas that most IMF staff are not knowledgeable about, including gender impacts, human rights and climate change. The different parties may end up speaking different languages and given the power imbalances in the relationship, it falls on CSOs to adopt and speak the fund's language. I thought that was an excellent paragraph. It really captures this kind of two groups of people speaking past each other, different sort of epistemic communities, but one is more powerful than the other and basically sets the rules of the game. Next point, significant gap between the IMF's and CSO's expectations and motivations. There is a stark gap between CSO's expect expectations and motivations and those of the IMF. CSOs engaging with the IMF often hope to help shape IMF programs and their associated economic policies and also to push for more government transparency and accountability. The IMF, on the other hand, seems to be engaging with CSOs primarily as a way to diversify its social and economic understanding of the country and to gauge public perceptions of and potential adverse reactions to a prospective IMF-supported programme. The outcome is often a sense of disenchantment among CSO representatives who come to have low expectations of these engagements. Next point. Engagement is shaped by the degree of openness of civic space. National governments, who are the fund's primary constituency, can directly or indirectly impede the IMF's engagement with CSOs. This could be through actively attempting to limit civic space by censoring media campaigns, violently repressing protest movements, and in some cases punishing activists and their family members in retaliation for engaging with the IMF and or criticising the government. The near universal unpopularity of the IMS programmes meant that the risk of public discontent drawing a repressive response of some sort was seen in all country case studies. Meaningfulness, second point, uh, third point rather, meaningfulness of IMF CSO engagement varies and there is limited evidence of impact. Different CSOs, including those operating within the same country, expressed conflicting views regarding whether the IMS engagements with them were meaningful. Some reported that IMF staff genuinely seemed to want to understand their country's social and economic context. Others had the impression that their conversations with the IMF only satisfied a formality, by which I think they mean ticking a box. The research found only patchy evidence that CSO engagement was perceived or was actually having a tangible impact in shaping IMF programmes, but a standout exception was the case of Ghana, 
in which several economic conditionalities were thought to have been influenced by the CSOs who engaged in discussions. That a unique characteristic of that engagement was a well-coordinated group of CSOs combined with an open finance ministry and an IMF mission chief who welcomed tripartite discussion involving the IMF, the government and CSOs before and after the IMF programme was approved. Very important exception in that case in Ghana. Really interesting in terms of you know, what to support and what to look for in the future. So the recommendations at this point implement a new IMF policy on engagement with civil society. Um, they want a new executive board guidance note and mission chiefs uh, should be required to meet with a wide range of stakeholders from civil society during each mission. Next, improve meaningfulness and impact of engagement, which means predict, be more predictable, structured and planned, less of this informal chats over a glass of wine or, you know, whatever, um, and be more transparent about this. Third, factor in civic space. Uh, the degree of civic space openness should shape the engagement mechanism, including how formal and how on the record it is, obtaining the consent, consent of CSOs, including taking the necessary security measures to ensure their safety. I presume yeah, a lot of this stuff is not just about the IMF. I think it probably applies to other multilaterals like the World Bank or the regional development uh, banks, but also donors. So I think you know, a lot of people should be reading this, this paper if they're serious about civil society organisation uh, involvement in policy, yeah, in, in these consultations about loans and conditions. So great, great job there. Last post of the week. Uh, I, I've been teaching a course on activism at the LSE, as regular listeners will know, because I keep going on about it. And it's the best, one of the best bits of my working life at the moment. Uh, every year we get this great bunch of about 75 or so really keen bean students from around the world, many of whom are already activists, and they all get together and we kind of talk through things like power, systems, lots of examples, and then we look at what they've been working on as well. Um, but then they disappear, uh, and often you only hear from one or two. So I, before Christmas I actually emailed a couple of hundred of these people and said, what are you up to? Uh, and the, got quite a few replies actually, and uh, wrote, wrote, yeah, just summarised them here. So this is what I found out. So <clears throat> at the social movement end of the political, so they, they've they've ended up in different places, right? So the, some of them ended up at the social movement end of the political spectrum. For example, Tonika Kusiani got involved in organising the Tbilisi Pride Festival in Georgia last year which he describes as super dangerous, and I think he's probably right. But he was also involved in setting up uh, the Greens uh, as a new political party, um, and they, they seem to be making real, real uh, progress there. So that was impressive. Alice Nguyen Kao uh, ended up at Extinction Rebellion in its data analysis and insight department. I had no idea they had such a thing. Her job designing and implementing an expert elicitation survey centered on the question, what next for XR? So that's kind of combining, you know, good politics with geekery, which I guess is, you know, could be a, a, a mission statement for the LSE uh, in some ways. Um, and I have a, a recent post on that XR change of direction where they've said they're, they're, they're moving to build a mass movement rather than getting arrested all the time. Um, some ended up in more conventional consultancies, obviously progressive ones. Madeleine Astor uh, just started a new job working for social finance. 
a non-profit social impact consultancy. Um, and she was interesting. She said, you know, um, one major thing we learned from your course is that change, especially systems change, takes time. I think a lot of us young students are passionate about change, but underestimate how much work and time goes into creating lasting systems change. True that, Madeline. Others are now working for big NGOs. Talia Kalnek-Sugin works for Sierra Club's federal policy team, where she's leading the, their federal advocacy work with the Biden administration and Congress to stop the rapid build-out of LNG export, uh, liquid natural gas export facilities along the US Gulf Coast. Uh, Becky Milon has gone to work for Stop the Traffic as head of consult consulting and business engagement and she's trying to influence businesses and financial institutions of all sizes to prioritize eradicating modern slavery. Some of them are working in faith-based organizations, which I always uh, think are an underrated influence in social change. Niklas Krakow has been um, uh, mainly working through his post as an honorary appointment of six years within the German Protestant Church, where he's trying to strengthen the ethically sustainable financial investment of all their assets. That is serious money, I imagine. Um, and some of them work in trade unions. So in the UK, Charlie Batchelor is working for the Fire Brigade Union's Education Department. Again, trade unions often ignored in discussions of social change, which is weird, really, as they're one of the biggest drivers of social change over the last century. And I fear that we fall into the same trap. So um, thinking about how much we should, you know, whether we can talk more about trade unions in our course. And finally, some are already on boards of charities. In Singapore, Valerie Yeo works as a consultant with PricewaterhouseCoopers during the daytime, but she's also a board member for a local charity in Singapore who's been doing a lot of work surrounding mental health and suicide prevention. So, I mean, yeah, super impressive. Not surprising, they're, they're amazing, these, these, uh, these, uh, these students. I can't call them the kids. Many of them are in their late 20s, early 30s. But they're yeah, super impressive, and I really am keen to find out where they get it, where they end up, you know, where they go in future. I was struck by the range of contexts, you know, that they can apply this, the basic kind of curriculum of systems thinking, stakeholder mapping, power analysis in all these different fields of life, from outside protest, outsider protest movements to insider influencing, from democracies to much more closed political spaces. Um, and also, I think confirm my suspicion that what is important about the course is not you know clever little techniques on this or that but sort of a much more general encouragement of, a, of thinking and working politically respect for the complexity of real life systems and, and somehow balancing that with your drive to bring about change it's that difficult uh, um, straddling that difficult divide i think is is the good bit um, and just in case you think that I'm blowing the trumpet for the course, I am in no way claiming the credit for any of this. Many of the students, as I said, already have impressive track records. Um, I think what matters most is the chance to read, reflect and share experiences, just take some time out and then return home to get stuck, stuck into changing the world. Me banging on at the front of the uh, room on PowerPoint, it's probably not the main thing, to be honest. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to banging on a bit more next week when the course starts again uh, and meeting the next cohort. And in the meantime, have a great weekend and talk next week. Bye.